Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, Kevin Powell is a prolific author, activist, and entrepreneur. He came to fame in 1992 as an original cast member in the MTV reality program, The Real World New York. But he went on to earn acclaim for his writing for Vibe and Rolling Stone magazines and for his many books. Powell's latest work is The Education of Kevin Powell. A Boy's Journey into Manhood. About his impoverished upbringing in Jersey City, New Jersey, he says, I think about the fact that for the first 18 years of my life, I never had one positive male role model. Not one. You know, there's some young people that I've met out here in different parts of the country. Even I can only speak for them for three or four minutes. I'm like, that's more than I ever got when I was a kid. You know what I'm saying? And so we should not take for granted, gentlemen, how important it is, particularly if these kids don't have fathers, that you actually represent a father figure, just by the fact that you're a grown person. And even if they're not your biological children, they're still your children. Powell credits his mother for making his life, quote, rich in other ways, for his ultimate success and dedication to public service. He is a co-founder of Building Knowledge Nation an organization that uses grassroots activism to prompt community projects and conversation. Among a wide range of subjects, this talk and dialogue addresses diversity, racism, gentrification, classism, gender and sexual identity, economic justice, the failures of our education system, and being black in Seattle. Local participants include MC Davida Ingram, poets Nikita Oliver and Leja Farr, Trey Maxey, Tariq Abdullah, and Giasi Ross. The Seattle Public Library hosted this community event on December 12th, thanks to Amy Tweedo and SPL for our recording. As I've said in some of the radio interviews that I've done uh, here in Seattle, this is the hardest book that I've ever written in my life. This is my 12th book, but it's the most difficult because it's an autobiography, it's a memoir, literally going from age three to my 40s where I'm at now. And it's like literally doing therapy on yourself. Are y'all with me out there? And it's not easy looking in the mirror because you got to really talk about some very painful stuff that you may have experienced in your life. But I really believe that if we're going to move forward as as a people, as a human race, as communities here in Seattle, New York City, all around this country, given all the craziness out there, I mean, I don't know about y'all, but it's like I almost cringe now when I turn on my computer and go to the news because I'm I'm bracing myself for more violence. Are y'all with me? You know, there's clearly a lot of hatred and fear and division out there. And one of the things that I wanted to do, and I said to to Amy and to Davida and the folks who put this together, I mean, I could easily say, you know what, let me just have a, let me have a book reading and let me stand here in a very boring way and read to y'all, you know what I mean, and then please buy my book. That's, you know what I mean, that's what a lot of us do as writers, I've done that. But, you know, if you buy the book, that's great. If you don't buy the book, that's cool, too. What I'm more interested in is, like, let's use the book as a tool to bring people together. And clearly it worked because y'all are here. You know what I mean? And that's what we've been doing around the country. I'm literally going to go to all 50 states over the next two years uh, uh, to have these kind of conversations. Not because I think I have all the answers, but I've literally been doing this work as an organizer, as an activist since I was 18 years old, since I was a youth just like y'all sitting in the front row. And I'm so committed to justice and equality for all people. I don't care what your race is, your gender, your gender identification, your sexual orientation, your class background, religion or not, ability or disability. We've got to get past all these isms and divisions and understand that we really are sisters and brothers out here. Can y'all feel me for a second? You know what I mean? 
Um, this book, um, the, the, the youth poet laureate, she, where did she go? She went to the bathroom. Okay. <laughs> but she touched my heart because, um, you know, I was raised by a single mother. The book is dedicated to my mother. I say that my mother is the first teacher and the first leader that I ever met. You know, and I'm so clear that even though my mother may not call herself that, you know, she also is a feminist. You know, she is a very powerful woman. And the book starts with her, you know, in the introduction, and it ends with her. When I say that at the last line in the book, I'm doing it, Ma, I'm doing it. I'm so clear I would not be here if it wasn't for my mother. You know what I mean? And no offense, fellas, I love being a man. You know, I'm clear, you know, that I'm a man, and whatever that's supposed to mean, we're going to get into them sure at some point. But... I'm clear, in a lot of ways, the real leaders on this planet are women because she held it down when there was no help for her, you know. Uh, my mother came from the South, as I describe in the book. I talk about South Carolina. It's really deep to me. Do you remember that mass shooting that happened in South Carolina earlier this year where folks were praying? Well, guess what? The pastor of that church is actually connected to my family. He went to the same church that my grandmother went to in South Carolina. You know what I mean? And so my mother grew up in, this, in America where there was segregation, where there were people hanging from trees or racial profiling, you know, where people were called all kinds of names, like we see on Twitter and Facebook today, you know, where she was forced when she was eight years old to pick cotton because there was no money in the household. It was four girls and one boy and a father and a mother in a two-room shack. I want you all to think about that for a second. You know, I don't want to step on people's toes, but, you know, I realize that I'm privileged just standing here in front of you all. I'm privileged by the fact that I went to college. I think about where my mother came from. My mother ended up having to uh, take turns going to school with her sisters because it might have been one dress. Sometimes they were so poor that they would pour syrup into a bowl and they would just pass that around, and that was their meal. Are y'all with me out there? And so when I came into this library yesterday, I see all over Seattle, downtown Seattle, all these homeless sisters and brothers. I say, but for the grace of God, that could be me as well. You know what I mean? And so it doesn't matter if you have privilege. It's what you do with that privilege to help other people. We have a lot of selfish people out there, unfortunately, who only think about themselves and their careers and their resumes. But I never forget where I came from because my mother, as I describe in this book, and some of you all have read it already, I talk about those stories. You know, how she had to quit her education in the eighth grade. There are young people right now who might be in the seventh and eighth grade sitting in this room who actually have gone to school, have gone as far in school as my mother. Does that mean she's unintelligent? No. She's probably one of the most intelligent people that I've ever met, but her education got interrupted because of racism, because of sexism, and because of classism. She's a, she was a poor black woman in America, you know? And her life was not considered valuable. Her life did not matter. Just like those 13 women who were raped by that white cop in Oklahoma, their lives didn't matter either. Are y'all with me out there? You know what I'm saying? And we're going to get into this tonight. You know, it's going to be from love, but we got to be honest about what's going on in this country. we got a lot of people that like to lie and sweep stuff under the rug, and they just want to jump over to, well, we should all just get along. But guess what? You don't get a rainbow, which is what I want. I do want a rainbow, but you don't get to a rainbow unless you have that storm of a conversation. My mother migrated from the north, from the south part of me, to the north, looking for a better life, just like folks come from Korea or Vietnam or Mexico or Colombia, Guatemala. Y'all know what I'm talking about. People have come from Italy. People came from Ireland. People came from all over the world looking for a better life. She moved up north. And she met my uh, father, and she fell in love with my father. 
And my mother thought he was in love with her, but he wasn't. My father was probably about a decade older than my mother, and he said all kinds of manipulative stuff that we sexist, patriarchal, misogynist men like to do. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And he got my mother pregnant, and then they even had the decency when I was being born, my mother had to call a cab and take herself to the hospital. This is one reason why Gloria Steinem, who's considered the matriarch of the feminist movement, has always said, and I respect Gloria Steinem for this, she's always said that the real feminists in this country are black women. You know, the real, real womenists in this country are black women because look at all the things that black women have had to survive. Think about this for a second. My mother has a great school education. She's now having to raise a boy child by herself, the boy child that that poet just talked about so eloquently in her poem. She's a teenager. You know, I just said to our DJ, Brother Mizell, when I was 15, 16 years old, I couldn't even imagine thinking the way she just articulated about black boys for myself as a black boy. You can't tell me that young people are not geniuses, which is why I asked you all to say, you're a genius, you're a genius, you're a genius. You know what I mean? Well, my mother now was forced to raise me on welfare, food stamps, and government cheese by herself. We were so poor, as I describe in the book, it was deep for me, sisters and brothers, as people have been reading the book around the country, people have been in shock. Man, I didn't know, I, I realized I didn't know your life. You know, people see MTV's The Real World. They see cover stories on Tupac and Vibe magazines. Brother Trey Maxey, thank you, Brother Maxey, whoever you are. Just thank you with all humility. Thank, thank a Fanny Shakur for me. I love Miss Shakur. And, and we know that the spirit of Tupac lives. You know, Tupac lives. You know what I'm saying? And I try to represent that as best I can. My next book will be a biography of Tupac Shakur. You know what I mean? Um, my mother... People are reading this book, and they're like, man, Kev, you're telling me that the first eight or nine years of your life, you shared a bed with your mother in a bedroom, and your Aunt Kathy, who had a son that was three days older than you, born in the same year, shared a bed in the living room. I said, yeah, absolutely. You're telling me that y'all lived in tenement buildings in Jersey City where you were born and raised where there was rats, not mice, rats and roaches everywhere. Oh, yeah, we sure did. You're telling me that your mama would go to the corner store and ask the grocery man, can he cut a dollar's worth of bologna and slice it thick enough so it could last a week? Oh, yeah. You're telling me, Kev, that you, even, you, didn't even, you had no telephone in your house until you were eight or nine years old. Oh, yeah. That's the truth. And so it trips me out when I meet people who say they're going to go do missionary work overseas to help you know, people who need some help, but they don't want to go to the central district in Seattle. You know what I'm saying? They don't want to help the United Hood movement in Seattle, you know. They think they got to go somewhere overseas to find poverty. I'm like, poverty is right all around you. But we see what we want to see. Some of the most uneducated people I've ever met in my life are people who have bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, PhDs, but they can't see what's right in front of them. That was me. We were dirt poor. I had one pair of shoes and one pair of sneakers as a child, as a kid. If you ran holes into the shoes or sneakers, you had to put newspaper or cardboard at the bottom of the shoe. And I'm from the East Coast, y'all, so you know that meant snow in the wintertime. And so there were many times when my feet were frozen because mama could not afford to buy a new pair of shoes for me. You just had it, boy, you ran your shoes out, we're gonna have to just figure this out. So poor, I remember going to a, friend's, a couple of friends' houses when I was a child, I got, we had a black and white TV. You know the TV where you had to put the hanger in the TV to make it work? And then put some aluminum foil on the end of the... Uh, y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. We're not talking about some foreign land. We're talking about America. 
And people still live like this in America. They're called certain areas in Seattle or Detroit or New York or Oakland, you know. This is where I come from. I would go to people's houses and I think there was something wrong with their TV because their TV wasn't black and white like my TV. I'm eight years old. I saw my father a couple times. And this is why the men in the room, whatever your background, let me say this. It is unacceptable in 2015 to see all these things happening in our communities around the country. I know there are good men in this room. I Brother Cortez Sr., I respect you because I can see the love that his son has for him, the respect he has for the young people that he's with. Well, we need to multiply Cortez Sr. We need men to show up in the communities, y'all. I saw my father three or four times between the time I was born and age eight. The first time, my mother called him made him get me a watch. The second time, bought me my first bicycle. The third time, and he wasn't broke, he was a truck driver, and he actually owned a house in Jersey City. Gave me a little ride in a truck, took me to his house, and that was it. And then the last time, I didn't even see him, as I described in a book, it's a rainy day. Eight years old, my mother wasn't even thinking about it. This is back in the day where there wasn't no going to court and stuff like that. She just would call, and she would say very basically, can you help us? Can you help us? Can you help us? And we're at a drugstore on the phone. On, this is before cell phones, y'all, on a, on a, at a phone booth. And I could tell by my mother's body language that my father was saying stuff to her that she would share with me later. You lied to me. He's not my son. I'm not going to give you a near nickel for him ever again. He basically just kicked us both to the curb. I want you to think about that for a second. And he hung up the phone with my mother. I take very seriously uh, all the young people. You want to know why I was standing over there, uh, Brother Cortez, you know, when you, all your group was there? Because I think about the fact that for the first 18 years of my life, I never had one positive male role model. Not one. You know, there's some young people that I've met out here in different parts of the country. Even if I can only speak for them for three or four minutes, I'm like, that's more than I ever got when I was a kid. You know what I'm saying? And so we should not take for granted, gentlemen, how important it is, particularly if these kids don't have fathers, that you actually represent a father figure, just by the fact that you're a grown person. And even if they're not your biological children, they're still your children. One thing Brother Maxie Tupac said to me when he was alive, when I was writing interviews with him for Vibe magazine, he said, all the people disrespecting me and dissing me need to understand that I'm their child. That hit me in the core when Tupac said that, because Tupac's father was not there either. My mother is devastated, as you can imagine. I look like my father. You know what I mean? And she, he's saying, ain't my son, you know? And because there was no Oprah for my mother, there was no Dr. Phil, there was no Ellen, there was no Ayanna Van Zandt, there was no therapy or counseling or healing circles or sister circles. She basically had to suck it up. This is why Gloria Steinem said black women are the most powerful feminists on the planet. She had to suck it up by herself and raise this child. And I was bad, as I describe in the book. I'm angry. Mama took out some stuff on me. It took me years to forgive her, but I realized at a certain point when I began to 
go through my own healing process. Like, man, you got to forgive your mama because she did the best that she could under the circumstances. We were surviving, y'all. I went to four grammar schools, three high schools. We moved around so much. I'm an only child. This is one reason why I'm also, I know how to relate to all kinds of people. It's also a reason why I can also be a loner. Because you, you somewhere at one school, you're uh, uh, in one neighborhood, and then the next thing you know, you move somewhere else. Y'all feel what I'm saying? I'm angry because we're poor. I'm angry because we're eating the same food all the time. You know what I mean? Uh, people know me now. I'm a vegan. I mean, I, I have this whole different lifestyle. But, man, growing up, I just thought we, all we had was rice. I was like, we're just eating rice again and some kind of meat, you know? Why am I sharing this with y'all? I'm sharing this with y'all because we tend to talk about the super wealthy in this country, and we talk about the middle class, but people don't like to talk about the working class or poor people. Well, guess what? Kevin Powell, with his 12 books and all the stuff I do on TV and radio and all the stuff in the, around the country and overseas, I see the world through the eyes of poor people for the rest of my life. I'm going to forever speak on behalf of poor people, just like one of my heroes, two of my heroes. Bobby Kennedy spoke about poor people at the end of his life. He was a wealthy Irish-American brother who could have just been like, you know what, I'm good. But he started talking about oppression and racism and white supremacy. And Dr. King was born into the black elite in Atlanta. But what was he doing at the end of his life? Organizing a poor people's campaign. You know what I mean? We are hypocrites, y'all. If we celebrate Christmas and we don't think about Jesus who's symbolically supposed to be what Christmas is about, even though we know that was constructed. That's fake. Let's be real about it. If you really read, you know that. We know that. We're in a library. We're supposed to read, right? <laughs> Where would Jesus be? Right with the homeless people in Seattle, out there in the cold while we're in here comforted. Where was Dr. King at the end of his life? With sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. This brother with a PhD, this brother who won a Nobel Peace Prize when he was 34 years old, this brother who could have done anything with his life, he began to say, what does it matter that you can sit anywhere on the bus if you ain't got no money to get on the bus? What does it matter that you can sit at, the, sit at a lunch counter if you ain't got no money to buy a sandwich? He started talking about economic justice. Economic justice. Are y'all with me out there? Economic justice. Do I want to go back to the poverty that I experienced when I was a child that I described very vividly in this book? No. I don't want to go back to the rats, the roaches, the holy shoes, the hunger that I felt. You know, I don't want to go back to any of that. But I'm also not going to allow myself to be separated just because of some privilege. Some fake privilege from people who are out here struggling. You know? So this is the stuff that I talk about in the book. And but for the grace of God, it could have been me. I'm standing here because of my mother with her grade school education. I'm so clear about that. Because you know why I wanted to do the event here, too? There's a chapter in the book called The Library. When I was eight years old, my mama took me to the library. And we walked through the heart of the ghetto over all kinds of drug paraphernalia, broken glass, everywhere. <laughs> right? Broken glass, everywhere. Piss, stains, everywhere. But my mother said one day, we're going to go to the library. And she got a library card, and I got a library card. My mama likes to read the newspaper. She reads bits and pieces of the Bible. But as far as I know, my mama don't read no books. 
But she understood from the time I was three or four years old, y'all, this is why education is important, young people. My mother said to me from the time I was three or four years old, you're going to college, 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 you're going to college. This woman who had never set foot on a college campus. Why? Because we may have been poor financially, but we were not poor spiritually. And our imag- her imagination was rich. For someone to see possibilities for her son in spite of the circumstances speaks to a faith, a faith that is incredible. Are y'all with me out there? You know what I mean? My mother and education saved my life. I'm so clear about that. You know? So I want y'all to read the book. Um, take my email. Email me. Let you know what you think about the book. If you hate it, you can say that. I don't care. It's cool. But I hope that the book can be a conversation piece. My other 11 books are irrelevant to me at this point because this is the one that I've wanted to write my whole life. You know? This is the one where I, I just said, man, because when you grow up in the ghetto the way I did, your reality is your block and a few blocks north, south, east, or west. That's it. I didn't get on a plane until I was 24 years old. If you'd have told me, Kev, you're gonna, you will visit all 50 states the way I have, I would have been, no way. That ain't going to happen to me. You know? I remember when I was in high, in high school, y'all, I remember getting a letter from Puget Sound. Is that, that's the college here, right? And it sounded like it was on Mars. <laughs> I was like, well, where's, where's Puget Sound and where's Washington State at? And I was all confused. I'm thinking it's Washington, D.C., you know what I mean? But, you know, we're laughing, but then again, it's not funny because if you've not been exposed to certain things, because of your circumstances, you're, you're going to be limited. I did know I was going to go to college, but I never even thought beyond New Jersey or the East Coast. What are we going to talk about tonight? I want to throw a few things out there to y'all. <sighs> Racism. We're going to go through all of them. Racism. It's not just a white brother, a white police officer, wrecking, wreaking havoc on 13 black women in Oklahoma, raping them, which is egregious. It's not just someone calling you the N-word. Oh, no. That's too easy. You know? It's not just racial profiling cases, even though those are out of control. Would you all agree? When I was a youth and student activist, and I just want to correct some folks who keep saying, you know, since MTV and Vibe, no, actually before MTV and Vibe, I was an activist and a writer. You know what I mean? And so when I was a youth coming up in the 80s and into the early 90s, we dealt with so many racial profiling cases all over the country, it wasn't even funny. None of this is new. We got to stop acting like it's new. What is new is the fact that we have Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and camera phones to document this stuff. You know what I mean? We got to stop saying things like racial tension. Tension, if you know anything about words, the way I'm a writer, I know about words. Tension means something goes up and it goes back down. Now, let's call it what it is. It's called racism. It's called racism. Let's call it what it is. You know, does that mean that we hate people? No. Didn't I start this conversation saying we're all sisters and brothers? Are we all sisters and brothers? We're all sisters and brothers, right, y'all? But it means that if we're going to talk about race or gender or class or homophobia, we need to acknowledge power 
and privilege. Who has the power and the privilege and who doesn't or who's the victim of someone's power and privilege? Are y'all with me for a second? And so when I think about racism, it means that here I come to Seattle and I'm looking at what's going on in Seattle with all the gentrification, where it makes it seem like the central district barely exists anymore. You know, I think about the history of Seattle where, you know, and Brother Jossie, where's Brother Jossie? Yeah, he knows what I'm talking about. You know, we know that uh, Native Americans were here thousands of years, just like Native Americans were in New York where I'm from. I mean, Manhattan is a Native American word. But racism means that you think that just because you've landed there, you've now discovered something that people were already there. Are y'all with me for a second? And so you then commit mass genocide of indigenous people over the course of time. You know what I mean? And it's mass removal just like gentrification is removal. That's racism and classism and economic injustice. And people don't want to have that conversation, but guess what? I'm going to have that conversation because racism also means that you have to, now if you do that, it means that you have to teach racism in school and young people hear me clearly. If you go to school, be it public schools or you pay to be miseducated, it's called private schools. <laughs> and they're still teaching you in 2015 that Columbus discovered America. That is a racist lie. If you just celebrated Thanksgiving and people telling you about, oh, how the pilgrims and the Native Americans came together. No, actually, the Native Americans, no. You're celebrating genocide. You know? Now, I love everybody, but I'm also going to tell the truth about this country because what I've realized, because I have been to all 50 states in this country over and over again, every city you can name I've been to, I also realized that most of us have been grossly miseducated. We don't know anything about the country that we claim to represent. You know what I mean? When I hear people say things like, you know, they try and take our freedom, so we're going to take our country back and bring it back to the way it was and make America great again. The question begs itself, for who? Who are you talking about? You know what I mean? And that's racism because it's about, look at the beautiful diversity in this room. White sisters and brothers, black sisters and brothers, Asian sisters and brothers, Latino sisters and brothers, Native American sisters and brothers. This is America, y'all. But your education should actually look like the room of people. You should be learning about the contributions of all people that are in this room. And you should also be learning about yourself. One of the things I say in my memoir, it's tragic to me that I went from kindergarten to the 12th grade and black history was a total of two pages in 13 years. Rosa Parks, Dr. King's Dream, Jackie Robinson, and maybe a few other things, and that was the totality of my black education. You wonder why I grew up a self-hating black person? I didn't know anything about black history, nothing. I don't care if you're African-American, Irish, Jewish, Puerto Rican, Mexican, Vietnamese, Chinese, you gotta know who you are. How are you gonna come to the table of the human family if you don't even know what you're contributing to the human family? That's racism, you know? And so we do, to my white sisters and brothers who ask me this question all the time, hey, what can I do? There's a couple things. Because you understand power and privilege, just like, you know, uh, uh, my brother Cohen, who just left. One reason why he's one of my best friends, because Michael Cohen, who left, who edited my, helped to edit my book, was actually an educator, a school superintendent on Long Island, and he actually oversaw a school system that was mostly people of color, and he did battle over and over again as a white brother, as a Jewish brother, with white brothers and sisters who were resistant to diversifying the curriculum. Are you with me for a second? 
who were resistant to seeing these young people of color as human beings. But because Brother Michael understands white supremacy and white privilege and white power, and he's an ally in the truest form, he fought it and he fought it and he fought it and he challenged it, that this is unacceptable. That's what you do. You raise your voice up if you know there's an injustice. You know, you don't stand, stay silent because as Audre Lorde said, your silence is agreement. You know what I mean? There's a lot of us who like to use the term intersectionality of oppressions. Well, if you're a white feminist, I'm all with it. I'm a pro-feminist man. But it's really deep to me that I barely heard any white feminist talk about these 13 women who were raped by this white police officer. But they have all this stuff to say about Bill Cosby, which you should because he is a monster. But this white man in Oklahoma, this police officer who raped these 13 women, black, is also a monster. So you can't be selective in what you're offended by. You can't be selective in what oppression you're going to choose to align yourself with. Either you're for justice and equality for all people or you're not. Racism. And so if you don't know about America, you need to learn about America. Who are the indigenous people? The word Seattle is a Native American word. Do we even know that? As we represent it, it's like when I'm in Brooklyn. I love New York City. Everybody's like, where's Brooklyn at? I'm like, but no one knows what Brooklyn even means. We're celebrating Seattle, but do you even know that Seattle is a Native American word? Do you even know the name of the indigenous people that are a part of this community? You know what I'm saying? And those of us who are massive sports fans, I'm a huge sports fan, but there's absolutely no way I would ever, ever celebrate a sports team called the Cleveland Indians, the Atlanta Braves, the Washington Redskins, anything that's disrespectful to my Native American sisters and brothers. Because that's racism being perpetuated over and over again. You know? Racism is power and privilege, the dominant group thinking that they are superior, and then the rest of us walking around calling ourselves minority. You ain't a minority. You're a person of color. You know, I'm an African person. I'm real clear what I am because I read and I study and I travel. And it's not an egotistical. I'm humble. As my people down south say, I'm humble. We ain't got the H. I'm humble. You know what I mean? But I refuse to ever go back to the black boy that I described in that book where I was so self-hating and self-defeating because I didn't know anything about myself. Racism. So y'all got to raise your voices, white sisters and brothers. But people of color here, y'all got to raise your voices too because you can't afford to internalize the racism. Whenever I hear a person of color say stuff like, well, we just do this and we just this way, I'm like, do you know all the people in the community all around the country? You know all of them, you know? You're participating in it. You actually are basically saying that you agree with this system that's teaching you to, to marginalize yourself, you know? When you hear us saying stuff like good hair and bad hair in 2015, you should be happy you got some hair. Because any hair is good hair. When we're still disrespecting people because of their complexion, their nose, their lips, etc., and we're thinking there's, only, there's one standard of beauty that's the only standard of beauty, y'all know what I'm talking about. No, everybody's beautiful. That's racism, internalized. But we're not going to stop with racism. Sexism. I mean, someone came up to me and talked about, you know, I do a lot of work, and I was like a lot of us men out here. I mean, men, let's be real about it. All men are sexist. Right, ladies? <laughs> Y'all know. My mama says it all the time. You know, she can do bad. And every generation of women I've ever encountered know that phrase. You know what I mean? 
When they founded this country, quote unquote, they said all men are created equal. They didn't say anything about women, you know? And Sister uh, Thompson and other sisters are going to speak and talk about this, but I just want to say this as a, as a male ally. Gentlemen, you know, uh, we got power and privilege just because of our gender. You know what I mean? And we need to understand that. I didn't understand that growing up, because just like I didn't learn anything about black history growing up, what did I learn about women from K through 12? Betsy Ross sold a flag, and then here we go back to Rosa Parks. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the totality of the contributions of women on the planet. Meanwhile, the most dynamic women in my life were my mother, my aunties, and my grandmother, but I didn't realize, wait a minute, they represent female power. College, I might have studied one woman author, Zerna Hurston, their eyes were watching God. And you wonder why many of us men and boys engage in destructive behavior. It ranges from calling women all kinds of, and girls all kinds of disrespectful names, or as I describe in a book, at a certain point in grade school, running around grabbing girls' body parts. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We see women and girls as two things, most of us, caretakers or sexual objects. Y'all with me out there? I know some of us don't want to hear this, but it's the truth. How are you going to disrespect half the world's population? Women and girls are our equals, 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 are our equals. I don't care what anyone says, I'm saying it. I'm a Christian, I go to church. The only reason why I go to the church that I go to because women and girls are treated as equals. There's no white Jesus perpetuating racism. And my LGBTQ sisters and brothers are welcome in that church as equals. Those are my three criteria. No white Jesus, women and girls are equals, and do not denigrate LGBTQ sisters and brothers. Intersectionality, y'all feel me? And so, men, what I'm saying to you all out there, us, as we talk about these issues tonight, I'm going to wrap this up as quick as possible, but one out of four women and girls in this country are the victims of some sort of sexual violence in their lifetimes. One out of three on the planet, which means over a billion women and girls on the planet. So even if you're not the kind of man or boy who would ever call a woman or girl some disrespectful name, grab her, without her permission, touch her without her permission, pardon me, uh, engage in the foul behavior we see on college campuses all over the country or in the community, do any of those kind of things, God forbid, rape. This, you should see the emails that I get from women and girls, women who have to sleep with guns or knives under their pillows, women who's been set on fire while they were asleep by their mates. Y'all know what I'm talking about, you know? Even if you're not the kind of man who would do any of that stuff, and God forbid, murder, which is increased in this country, your intimate partner, but you have men and boys around you, in your fraternity, in your organization, on your sports team, in your synagogue, your masjid, your church, whatever it is, who engage in any behavior that is destructive to women and girls, and you fellas say nothing about it, we, you, us, become just as guilty. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. And then what we try to do as men, we'll twist it around and say, well, what, what, how about how these women are acting? Well, Brother Trey Maxey, let's bring it back to Tupac for a second. We know that Tupac had his contradictions, but there's something important that I need to say here. When you listen to the lyrics of Dear Mama, he said of his mother, even when you were a crack fiend, you were still a black queen. And what he was essentially saying is, I'm not here to judge you. I still recognize your humanity as a, a powerful human being that is known as a quote-unquote woman. Are y'all with me out there? But a lot of us, my God, I couldn't even imagine being a woman or girl in these times with all these destructive images through the mass media culture. 
videos, reality TV shows. It's everywhere. So fellas, just how I challenge us around race privilege, we as men around gender privilege, male privilege, whatever you want to call it, y'all got to speak up. Y'all got to say something. If you don't know what to do, you don't know what to read, their names are Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, Eve Inslet, Gloria Steinem, you know, read, read, and question, and challenge, and start changing your vocabulary. Stop saying he for everything. How about she or he, or they, if you want to just be neutral about it? You know what I'm saying? But we're not going to stop at gender, the class issue. I talked about it earlier, but this is, this is, uh, this is obscene to me. As I've been listening to people talk about Seattle, I feel like I'm back in New York City. I love Brooklyn, New York, but Brooklyn has been gentrified out of its mind. You know what I mean? There's a land grab going on all over the place, and people who are working class or middle class, because middle class, you're just a few checks away from being working class, basically. We're, people are being pushed out. And where are people being pushed out to? Because folks want to come into the city, so people are being pushed to the suburbs. You ask the people in Chicago. Where are they supposed to go? And so when we talk about class issues, y'all, you know, the challenge is, one, you need to know the economic system that you live under. Most of us have no working knowledge of it, you know. We get caught up in it as consumers from Thanksgiving to New Year's. We spend tons of money we, most of us don't even have. One thing I like to say now, I'm fond of this word. I am frugal, cheap. I'm cheaper than ever because I realize it's a game, you know what I mean? Buy, buy, buy as if your value, your self-worth is tied to material stuff. It's the kind of car you have, the kind of jewelry you have, and you can't take any of this stuff with you. But you get caught up in it, and then you wonder why most of us are in perpetual debt our entire lives. And if you're poor, you're dependent on the government your entire life. Are you with me out there? And so when we talk about this class issue... I really want to challenge y'all. Y'all go to a Dr. King program in January. Y'all should ask whoever's organizing that Dr. King program, how come we only talk about Dr. King up to the I Have a Dream speech? How come we don't go to him from 1965 to 1968 when he was talking about economic justice and a radical redistribution of wealth? How come we don't talk about his Vietnam War speech where he's condemning war just like Brother Tupac did and keep your head up, we got money for war, but we can't feed the poor or the homeless in Seattle and other places? Like, there's no housing for these homeless people, but you got all this fancy stuff going on around them. Y'all feel me? Like, they're invisible. And so classism is real, y'all. You know, when I hear people say things like, you know, Brooklyn's gotten so much better, my question is, for who? You know what I mean? Or look at all these great restaurants, but the restaurants in Brooklyn don't even hire the young people who live in the community in Brooklyn. Classism. Y'all with me? But we can't stop there, you know. I, one of the things I asked Davida, because this is so important, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer community. A lot of folks, Brother Kevin, I've actually had people say to me, Brother Kevin, you need to leave that gay stuff alone. I'm a heterosexual, cisgendered man. Okay, I'm a straight dude, quote unquote. But one of the things I realized as I was under, beginning to understand patriarchy, sex, and misogyny, hey man, you also got to deal with this issue of homophobia. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was watching a video last night where this so-called black leader was going off on LGBTQ people, you know, calling it a mental illness and all kinds of stuff. And I said to myself, if that's the case, then Audre Lorde was mentally ill, James Baldwin was mentally ill, Billy Strayhorn, who created all those great songs with Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington's writing partner for decades, he must have been mentally ill, 
Y'all feel where I'm going with this? You know? And my thing is, like, they are and have been and have always been a part of our community. Always. I'm just going to say this in very simple terms. About 10 years ago, Mayor Rasparaka, he's the current mayor of Newark, New Jersey. His father was the late great writer, Amir Baraka. Ras's youngest sister, Shawnee, was a lesbian. Shawnee's, old, their older sister, was in a domestic violence situation that was terrible with the husband. It gets better, y'all. The husband was actually a community organizer about the people, quote unquote, whooping on the older sister. Shawnee and her partner, Ray Sean, went to the house one day because they didn't think anyone was there because Shawnee, um, Shawnee um, would stay there periodically. She went to retrieve her stuff. Long story short, this man happened to be there, and he shot Shawnee dead, and then he shot dead Ray Sean. It was the saddest funeral I'd ever been to in my life. Two women, because they were women and because they were lesbians, dead because of hatred. And one of the things I thought to myself, and by that time I had already been someone who was speaking out as an ally to the queer community, to the LGBTQ community, for the rest of my life, I don't care what anyone says, I'm going to challenge that kind of hatred and ignorance. You know what I mean? And so when we talk about why we're here tonight, I just want to put it out there, because I know folks have their own organizations, they have their own agendas, you know, and I get it. I'm an organizer. I've been doing this for 30 years. And some of us, it might be race. For some of us, it might be gender. Some of us, it might be, you know, community issues around our sexual identity. I get that. And you should be about what you're about, but I also want us to take a leap forward and think about folks who might be different than us that are sitting in this room. Can we do that? You know? Because I really feel what this world really needs more than anything else is love and peace. But we also need to start to talk with each other and listen to each other. If we don't agree, let's disagree civilly, you know, with some respect and some love. Because I don't know about y'all, but I'm sick and tired of going around this country and seeing people just fighting each other over stuff. I'm sick and tired of us scapegoating people because they might be Muslim. Because we know today as Muslims, it used to be black people, or it is black people, or it's Latino people, or it's immigrants, or it's Jewish people. Y'all know I'm going. In this part of the country, Chinese exclusionary laws, y'all know what I'm talking about. You know, Japanese people being put into internment camps during World War II, y'all know what I'm talking about. You know, women historically, gay people, lesbian people, transgender people historically, you know. And so we got to really think about how we are going to go forward and what this country is going to look like and what is your role going to be in it. And some of us may not want to hear that, but I'm going to keep saying it anyway because we got to change this country and we got to change this world. You know, we do, we do a disservice, a disservice to the people who sacrificed for us to get to this point if we just sit here and, not, and allow the right wing, those fascist, racist, sexist, homophobic, right wing people to be more organized which they are, because we on the other side don't even know how to talk with each other or listen to each other, and we fighting each other. That's what I see all over the country. So I want to open the floor up. Uh, Brother Jossie, come on up. Sister Thompson, come on up. Uh, Sister Farr and some other folks, and we're going to have a conversation. The folks are going to share, and then we're going to pass the mic around in the audience. Is that cool? All right, let's do it. Come on. Let's give them a round of applause.
So whoever wants to speak first, uh, just speak. Whatever's on your heart. One thing, if I can say one thing, though, we don't have a lot of time, and let's not assume we can solve every problem in, a, in an hour, because we can't. And so try to keep it succinct. What does Shakespeare say? So, uh, Brevity's a soul of wit. Make it mad short. That's the Brooklyn translation. <laughs> keep it mad short, son. You know what I mean? All right? But I will, I will ask folks up here and out there, think about action steps and solutions, at least one that people can take with them from here. All right? Anyone? Oh, I thought we were starting up here. <laughs> can we start up here first? If you don't mind. Is that all right? But you'll be the first person from the audience. I apologize. I just want to start by saying thank you to Kevin. That was a great message. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear it tonight. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. You don't want to say anything else? You good? That's good for now. Okay. I'm sure I'll pipe in later. All right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, brother. Um, I know we haven't officially met, but I want to say is that was appreciate. Yeah, a lot was going through my head at the time when you. Well, I'm about to fall off the stage. So. I don't want to sit down. I don't want to sit down though. I'm gonna walk around. You can sit down. You old. How old are you? Seventeen. She's old. Seventeen is old. Forty, 40 something is a new thirty. I don't know. Just want to thank everybody You're for 42? coming. Yeah, That's crazy. I'm sorry. Now what are you wanting us to, to do right here with this microphone? Introduce yourselves. Introduce yourselves again. It's what's on your mind, you know. Um. So I'm Nikita. I, I do thank poetry, you. but I also am a, a, a community organizer. Um, I also am really thankful for your message, but uh, really thankful for the way in which you overlapped issues of class, gender, and, and race, because I think it's very easy for us as organizers to get caught up in whatever circle or group we're organizing with. Uh, thinking about Seattle, something I would like to see us enter into more of a conversation about is how we engage in particular in anti-blackness within communities of color, because uh, it's very easy here where we're 30% various Asian communities uh, and only 7 to 10% black to other each other in a way that feeds into the institution in one way and then in another way margin, marginalizes us. So I think that would be a conversation I would like to see us start having more of in these spaces. Justin. Uh, peace, everybody. Is this on? Yeah, it's, it's peace. On. Peace, brother. Uh, my name is Jossie Ross. I'm from the Blackfeet Indian Reservation in Browning, Montana. And I'm also from the Suquamish Indian Reservation, which is right across the water, who uh, Chief Seattle, Chief Seattle, was a member of. That's right. And we sit on Duwamish land, for you folks who do not know that. We're on, we're on Duwamish ancestral homelands. And Kevin kind of alluded to this in 1856, yes, sir. one of those exclusionary acts. The original Battle of Seattle was not WTO. It was, yeah. it, it was an um, act by, at the time, the Seattle City Council to exclude all the natives out of the city. Mm. So this is literally... The, the, the fishing lands of the Duwamish folks right here where we're sitting at right wow. now. And it's always important Say to that. acknowledge where you're at. Say this. Um, thank you very much for the conversation, Kevin. Kevin's one of my buddies. He's one of the people I look up to a whole bunch. I look up to uh, you mentor. And, and um, I know he probably wouldn't take it as such, but I, I do, whether you accept it or not, damn it. <laughs> yes, sir. I, I look up to him a whole bunch. So, um, and and I, the conversation piece and the, the thing that strikes me most about Kevin's message just generally, definitely this book, 
but just generally through his life, through his practices, is inclusion. Because I think a lot of times as people who consider themselves progressives, we have a tendency for back, you know, back patting. We, back, we pat ourselves on the back a whole bunch. And, and there's a message that I, I like to take from, from uh, like Michael Cohen, the Jewish tradition, hmm. which is there's this notion called the 10th man. Yeah. The 10th man says, if nine people agree, you have an obligation as the 10th person to say, hey, well, we need to think about something else. Mm. And, and a lot of times, as people who consider ourselves progressive, we say, okay, well, we're, we're crossing off this little, uh, uh, you know, um, heterosexualism, this, this, this uh, 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 feminism, this, this, this um, racism. We're anti all that bad stuff. Huh. But what about poverty? Yeah. But what about inclusion? We have a breadth of people that we reach, but what about death? Why don't we reach into mm. and find some new people and find real diversity? The stories that haven't been told. That's right. You know, there's always a usual suspect. Um, Larry and I, my brother Larry was talking about my son. My son's eight years old. He's the child of a doctor and a lawyer. Mm. He's native. He's native as hell. But that's not true diversity because he's also a child of privilege. There's a story that hasn't been told, and there's, some, ha, there's somebody who hasn't been exposed to opportunity. Huh. And that's what inclusion is all about, is opportunity. So I thank you for that message very much, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Laysha Farr. Um, I'm a student at Cleveland High School, um, involved in BSU, um, Poetry Club, um, the journal at my school. So I'm just very excited to be here and meet Kevin Powell. I'm excited um, to meet you. You're the poet laureate. <laughs> yeah. Um, brought amazing words and things for me to think about. Um, when you talked about gentrification, um, Central District, um, Yesler, that's a huge one. Um, it's just, it's very sad to see that people are being pushed out of their homes for new homes to be built there. Um, Places that people saw as their home, they're, they're being pushed out. And um, I think that we need to stand up and be the voice. That's right. Um, saying that this is not okay. Our art programs are being taken away. Um, education's being taken away from these people. So I just think that we need to stand up and tell them that it's not right. Because like what you said, silence is consent. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. yeah. So I'm Laurieann Thompson, and I'm here because I write children's books. Hmm. And I write books about change makers. And I, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a change maker, but I felt like um, I didn't have that, that power, that privilege. Um, I'm a woman. Uh, hmm. I grew up in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere, and I didn't know anybody who was out there making changes. Um, I thought somebody needed to give you permission to make a difference and that you wow. had to have, you had to be one of those special people that you see out there making a difference. Yeah. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I realized all you got to do is get out there and do it. That's right. And anybody can do it. And, and we all have that power. We all have that capability. And I think uh, there's so much power in our young people. Like you said, I love that you said, you know, mm. young people are geniuses. And... Um, I'm out there working with them. I'm talking to them every day, and I absolutely believe that. Um, you know, when I talk to them about the problems that they're seeing and what would they solve if they could, 
it's amazing to hear the list that they come up with and the things that they want to do. And um, when I wrote the book, Be a Changemaker, a lot of people said to me, why are you writing a book for teenagers about being a changemaker? They're apathetic and they don't care. And they're so self-absorbed. And I said, have you talked to any of them? Right, exactly. Um, I find teenagers to be so full of fire and passion and yeah. care for this world. Yes, ma'am. Um, that is what gives me hope to go on. And um, so talk to the kids and give them this message because they are out there doing the work for us. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Tarek Abdullah. I am a Seattle native. I am a chef and educator. Um, I run a junior culinary program for kids ages 6 to 14. Wow. Because um, I believe that teaching the kids and feeding the people are very, very vital and always has been. Um, and I believe it starting young. Um, I come from the Central District very early, 81. 80, 81, 82, which is a very black, very, very black neighborhood, which Inye could probably speak about that. Larry could speak about that. Um, and watch, and watch over time, and watch black-owned businesses, yep. black homes just slowly, slowly go away. And my father being very well respected in a Muslim community and the, the black community, I just felt like, ever since his passing, I just felt like I needed to to do the exact same thing. And for me, it's very, very important to teach these youth to understand that your life is valued more than what anyone will tell you based on the box, based on the press, based on any form of negativity that comes your way. But in order for that to happen, you need to be well-fed, well-educated, and respected. And so it has been my journey and my passion to always do this until the day I am done to teach these youth to understand you are worth more than what you even know. Huh. And um, I feel very blessed to be standing next to this brother and all these other oh folk gosh. up here that are all like-minded and on the same path that we all want. We want our kids for the right direction. And um, I want to say thank you, brother, for being here. Thank you. Um, I want to, if, if I could just say a couple quick things that came to my head, and sir, you got the mic. Do you have a mic in your hand, actually? Can we pass him a mic at some point? Do you have a mic, sir? Can we pass him a mic? If we, okay. The gentleman with the glasses. But if I could say something as we're getting a mic to the gentleman, um, a couple things went through my head. Um, I think the, people always ask, well, I think the most important thing we can do for series about building our communities uh, is to be prepared. Uh, it's not my quote. It's a friend of mine, my fraternity brother, my member of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity, uh, Lasana Hotep. He's an educator out on the West Coast. I, well, we're on the West Coast in California, pardon me. And when I say prepared, you know, we, we really do need to read and study and travel. And that's not just young people. You know, it's older people as well. You know, I, I wasn't joking when I said we all need to have a real knowledge of this country and this world that we live in, these systems of oppression that exist or what this economic system is, whatever you want to describe it as, you got to, be, you got to know what it is. You got to be prepared. And then I also think that, um, yes, talk with young people, but I think more, just as important is listen. You know, I was just in Mississippi last week where the, this school I was at literally arrests young men for sagging pants. Now, regardless of what you might think, 
and I'm a hip-hop head for life, so let me preface what I'm about to say. Regardless of what you might think, you know, when you start to demonize young people for the way they dress, their hairstyles, their tattoos, their clothing, it's saying to me, you're not even interested in who they are as human beings. You know what I mean? And what y'all don't realize, I may have on a suit now, but my generation, and Jossie knows what I'm talking about, we actually started sagging pants. And so it's not something... You know what I mean? It's not like some new phenomenon, but it was, it's a form, every generation is rebelling. They really, it's, it's a way of articulating, you a poet, you're a youth, you know what I'm talking about, and y'all out there know what I'm talking about, is expressing themselves and saying there's something wrong with this world, we're going to create our own identity. You know what I mean? And I just think that, that we got to stop demonizing young people. I can't remember a single speaker when I was in high school, all four years, who came because they all sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher and they all said the same stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was whack. And a lot of adults, keeping it 100 with y'all, are whack. And that includes folks who work with young people a lot. You know, how can you work with a young person you don't even have a working knowledge of who Dreezy and Breezy and Yeezy are? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and if you're scratching your head like, well, who are they? That's part of the problem. And then the, the last thing I'll say, go to the brother in the audience, is I also think we've got to be careful. Like, what we do is dump on every generation. When I was a youth... Your generation, y'all got to do it. No, actually, we got to do it. You can't make it seem like the young people got to do it all by themselves. Now, what young people bring to the table may be energy and a little bit more time and idealism and hope that some of us lose as we get older, but this has got to be multi-generational. You know what I mean? Stop saying young people got to do it by themselves. You know? No, my assistant, she's 22 years old. There's stuff that I can teach her, but there's stuff she's teaching me because she's born in 1993, so we're actually mentoring and shaping each other. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And we work together. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, sir. Sorry. That's on. Yes. Um, I, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Stand up, sir. Um, I, you spoke about classism. And I've worked with um, some youth, and, and a lot of them, you know, they're ready to get that, you know, that, you know, make, make it big. How do you talk about classism to people who don't have anything? Huh. And then when they get there, how are they reminded of their responsibility, not only towards the, the reality of what classism is all about as far as the, you know, our earth and, and its responsibility of how we're ecologically minded? Huh. Anyone want to, any of y'all want to talk about that? There's so many ways. So Whoever wants to speak. I mean, I can speak from my perspective as a teacher. Uh, you know, I try to talk with young people about the system we live in, and that's capitalism. And capitalism has played a major role in why we're dealing with, dealing with classism the way that we are. Um, this idea that it's a free nation to buy and sell as you wish. Uh, and I try to do that within the cross-sections of race and gender because capitalism is why black folks' bodies could be bought and sold as property. And then, you know, as we unpack that, there is a reality about classism, in particular in the black community, uh, and we know that real well here in Seattle that uh, black folks with money here don't often agree with black folks who don't have money. Hmm. And that's caused a major divide for us as we try to deal with these institutions in these spaces. And so I think, um, you know, I try to start with a question when I talk about classism with young people because they know it. They already observe it. They have a lot of thoughts about it. And so um, I think to talk about it, you ask them what they know about it first, uh, for me personally. And then we go from there. We'll unpack it. We'll talk about the history. Yes, How did we get to having different classes? Uh, what are the movements that have happened because of classism? Who's been allowed to participate in those movements and who hasn't been allowed? Whose voice has been most heard in them? And then 
what is classism doing in our current context? I don't know if that's how everybody else does it, but that's my approach, because I think young folks already have an incredible understanding of it. They may not use the same language that I use. Exactly. Uh, but I also think that because they are young and they haven't lived in it the same way I have at, at 30, um, as someone who went to law school and my engagement now with classism is very different, mm. uh, I think they have, um, they, they hold a lot of the solutions as well because they see it so fresh. I now see it from this legal perspective, this idea of preserving classes. Uh, and so I think they also hold me accountable when I approach them from a more of a what do you know uh, perspective. Hmm. You know, uh, people like to, people of color, oppress folks, historically overlook folks. There's this game that we play sometimes called Oppression Olympics. You ever heard of that? Huh. Oppression Olympic. Who got it worse, right? Who got it? <laughs> I had it worse. Because mm. I think that Native person that's fairly um, in tune to history, black folks got the worst treatment in this wow. nation's history. Wow. And the reason why is this. This is the reason why. Mm -hmm. Because the, the materialism that you, there was a study. This is empirical data which means respectable white folks studied this. <laughs> I'm a lawyer by trade. That means I lie for a living. So don't believe shit I say. <laughs> this is a study. <laughs> Black folks account for $1 trillion of spending power. Yeah. That came out just like last month. Yeah. $1 trillion in spending money, power. That money empirically leaves the black community within like, 30 seconds. Mad fast, yeah. yeah. I went to school in New York City. I remember one time I was walking down 125th Street and I saw this kid, this little brother, maybe 15, 16 years old, 125th Street. He was coming out of Dr. J's when Dr. J's was on 125th Street yeah. and he had three bags of sneakers. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I'm broke, I'm a student, but I know I got more money than him. But he believed the lie. Oh. The lie is this that somehow black folks can still purchase through material goods yeah. freedom, yeah. respectability, status, the dream. and class within this nation. Yes, sir. It's a monopoly game. Native people, the reason why native people, I say that black folks have, the worst, have it the worst of the oppression Olympics is because native people, I'm going to the Blackfeet Indian Reservation tonight. I'm driving there tonight. Hmm. It's 1.7 million acres of nothing but me. I'm going to go there and drink the same water that my ancestors have for 20,000 years and wow. breathe the same air that my ancestors have for 20,000 years. And black folks cannot, as a matter of fact, within this nation. And so what that does to the psyche, there's a reason why 40 acres and a mule didn't go through. That was a proposal that was proposed by black ministers in the South that said, we'll have a homeland to go through. We'll have a homeland to go to when things get bad. And that never happened. And so now another empirical data that was studied by respectable white folks was that black folks, as opposed to the 856 million acres of private land that white people own within this nation, black folks only own 7 million acres. That's the reason why. And, and so the point, I suppose, with all of that, the $1 trillion, the 7 million acres versus the 856, is that 
classism ultimately amounts to nothing because really you're not purchasing anything. You're purchasing, you're being a consumer, you're purchasing perishable goods right. that are going to be gone within a short period of months. And there's no real value to that. And so to the black folks that talk about classism, yep. you're not really talking about classism. Yep. You're talking about material goods for a short period of time that really have no value. And there are no different classes of black folks as police are very, very quick to remind you. <laughs> so that's all. Wow. Here and here. Here than here. I see a lot of hands. Yes, you have a mic, ma'am? Um, oh, yes, greetings, right peace. Okay. Um, I've been living, born here, lived here, and looking at the gentrification. And we talk about how people have moved from the central area out. So now that's taken place, but what is the mindset? What is the experience? What is going on? with the people that have been moved out. There's no way that I know of, if I want to say this brother's coming to Seattle, how do I reach way out there? There's, there's no um, real strong, I don't know what word I'm looking for. But there's, just no, there's no connection We've lost that connection. It used to be that you, know, you can call, you know, four or five organizations and you'll have a lot of people to be able to come together to go and do different things and unify behind issues that we need to unify about. But now we've been pushed out so far. So I want uh, some thoughts on that and how, how to be able to communicate more. Well, I think as black people, um, especially here, we need to start um, investing in black businesses more. Um, I think that we've, we've not done that as much. Um, and it's important, you know? We, it's important for us to unify by doing that, you know? It baffles me that one day we're supposed to be thankful for everything we have, and then the next day we're running in stores and trampling over people. I think that it's very important as gentrification happens to invest in black companies, you know, Ezel's or Catfish Corner, you know, just invest in black companies and spend your money there on Black Friday. So that's what I think. If, where is, uh, you know, Jocelyn and I were just saying something real quickly. It's community. Like, what happened to community? Literally. Like, what really happened to community? Now, community is based on I'm not barking on them, but based on nonprofits and where we have for community centers through the city, that's not community. Right. Through, from the dawn of time, we used to ask grandma, great uncle, the great aunt, hey, could you watch this two-year-old while I go to work? And all of a sudden now we have to use a, a building by, that's ran by someone that has no form of connection or really doesn't even care to depend on that when we should be Waking up, going outside, knocking on our neighbor. Hello, neighbor. How you doing? Hey, I'm having some problems. Could you take care of? Could you take care of so and so and so and so? So a lot of it just has to just do with the lack of community. While we sit here and waste our time valuing ourselves around H&M and $150 sneakers, we should be valuing that our great grandmother, our great brother Jossie, this brother right here, this sister right here. We need to bring community back and not act like it's a front. I'm sorry, that's just my...
I also think, you know, there was a time in the Central District where uh, people were paying $5 a month into a fund to help us purchase our own spaces. Um, mm. You know, when we talk about community, what does it look like for us to really have our own space? And I know that here we don't want to talk about Coleman School or the Northwest African American Museum um, or Africatown and how there are some contentious relationships that exist within our, our communities, but that has an impact when we don't have real dialogues about what's keeping us from investing in each other and in spaces together. I mean, that trillion dollars, that is a crazy figure that that kind of money is leaving our community and yet we have no spaces. Just to get Africatown and that building down in the South End, we had to have a holdover tenancy. We had to go back and forth with the school district. People had to get arrested so that the school district, we would see that as, as black community, we're serious about having a space to educate ourselves. Like our brother was talking about here, we don't know ourselves. And we don't have spaces to house that education. There was a time in Seattle when people were like, the school's not educating us as black folks. We ain't going to school. We don't, we don't have school someplace else today. And when we don't have space to congregate, when we don't have space to invest in, when we, when we don't see each other as worth investing in in that way, we put our money elsewhere, then we do get really pushed even farther out this city. I think it's also complex in the sense that um, black folks who lived in the Central District, within King County, we're only about 10%. And when things go down within our very small community, they have a ripple effect. It has the ability to be really uniting or very disunifying. And I think we need to start making a decision about when things go down, whether or not we're gonna be committed to each other and be committed to building those spaces or we're gonna let ourselves continue to be pushed out into the feds um, but once we're out in the feds, the next question is, if we're all out there, what are we doing? Am I looking for you? Or are we trying to build more spaces? And so um, I think we need to rethink investment. And I think that goes back to this capitalism question that has told us if we just keep buying, if we just gain some money, if we just you know, try to get a little wealth, mm. we might be able to, to get that American dream. That dream was never built for us. So we need to create a different dream and be about building that dream that is built for us, for us, by us. Y'all remember FUBU? Nah. If I could just follow that, 30 seconds. I don't wanna, I don't wanna, that's a great point. And, but uh, Davida asked about action items. And so action items I think are very important. Yep. And if I were to attach an action item to that, I would say, I, I seen one of the sponsors, for example, is the town entertainment, right? Town Entertainment, are you, are you here, Jasmine? Are you, are you, Aaron? Okay, that's a black-owned business. That's a black-owned business. And they throw shows, very, very high-level shows, on a consistent basis, and it means very, very unsexy stuff, like, no, not asking at the door, hey, bro, can I get some love? <laughs> or, uh, for real, like, pain. Actually paying, soliciting, patronizing, going to the African American Museum and actually, oh, okay, well, we're going to go check this out. Instead of uh, uh, going, uh, you know, we're going to go to the movie, to AMC that doesn't care one bit. You're a drop, you're not even a drop in the bucket at AMC. But you go there and you solicit, you patronize. Those are action items to give one tiny percent of what Tarek talked about, those $130 sneakers, give a little tiny $13. If every single person did that here, 
that changes the endowment of these particular institutions. And all of a sudden, they have a little bit of air to breathe. They have a little bit of room to breathe. So that's an action item for all the folks in here, specifically the Town Entertainment, African American Museum, uh, uh, any, any black-owned local business. It isn't just black-owned. It's, it's, it's local businesses as well. Right. So just a thought. Um, you got the mic. Uh-huh. You got the mic. Oh, okay. Um, thank you for coming out. Um, just a real quick point, I guess, with our action item. Um, so I have a very unique per- perspective. I was adopted by white parents. I didn't have a black friend until college. So I, first of all, I want to tell white to black people, you're doing okay. The citizenship was kind of rigged against you. I mean, it's, when you hear a lot of this stuff, you, you, I, you, don't, you don't realize, and I didn't realize until I became a black adult, that all the things I saw, my dad can still write a check when people don't take checks, you know, my parents would be pulled over and they talked their way out of the ticket. This is what happens with white people and as a black person with honorary white privilege. And so it's a whole different game. And so I think part of the things that you were talking about, the system, is it's, it wasn't built that way. And I think part of it is that system is predicated on the black people having the shit end of the stick, kind of. And so it's not, it's, it's, in order to take that, white supremacy has to be dismantled, I guess. And so sometimes we have these weird conversations about black-owned businesses and supporting them, but if the white man don't give them a loan, or as soon as the person moves in there, they get, you know, I mean, so it's not the lack of ownership or the lack of wanting. I mean, the central district is turning right, it's not just because black people didn't want to be on 23rd. Brothers were selling weed on 23rd and union for years and going to jail. And now the guy makes a million dollars a week. So that's the conversation we have to have to talk. So if you don't want to talk about white supremacy, every time I hear somebody say black, I said, what's the anti-blackness? Why, where's the white supremacy? I think it was um, Farrakhan might, was said, you know, or somebody said, every place, you know, the white man is gone, hell is followed close behind. And my parents are white, all my relatives are white. I can tell you that as somebody that you cannot have a conversation about blackness or anything in America without having a conversation about white supremacy. And I think, so that's the action. Every time, like, well, wait a second, you know, what'd y'all do? What was your hand in this? Because if you look at there's always that hand. If there isn't that hand, it's the hand that gets the black folks to fight over each other. So it's like, well, you going to fight over that little crumb, that little corner that y'all was fighting over there for that museum. Never mind, we have this whole city. So I would just say, always call people out on the white supremacy. Who has the mic? I have it. Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you all for being here. My question is, um, as a transplant to this city, how can I overcome the barrier of not knowing the fullness of the culture here in the pursuit of helping the black community I'm represented by? You got the people here in this room to talk with. A transplant. I mean, I know we've probably, I know, I know, I have quite a few friends from, you know, Chicago in particular. And the first thing they asked me when they came out here was like, what do the black people do here? And, you know, and I'm just like, <laughs> you, you get, after a while, you know, honestly, you get tired of hearing that broken record. And instead of like, honestly, going out and finding, you just start. You don't wait, you just do. As much as I hate Nike, that damn slogan makes so much damn sense. But it's, uh, but it's real, though. Instead of sitting here wasting our time right. talking about it, just do it. And eventually, it'll change. We can sit here. I mean, we're going to sit here. I guarantee you, every time somebody gets on an airplane, they're going to be like, they're going to look Google. 
What do black people do besides go to Catfish Corner and eat at Heaven Scent? No disrespect. I'm just saying. But I'm just saying, instead of what we need to do is create, create outlets without waiting. And that's where we go back to community again. We call up our fellow brothers and sisters, and we say, let's just start something. No, stop begging. Don't ask for money. Just we make it happen. Make Eventually, it happen. We just make it happen. No more complaining. No more just dragging our asses. Just make it happen. Organically. This is not about money. This is about us. Before money, it was us. Right. I mean, I'm just listening to all of this, and, and, and as y'all can imagine, these are the conversations around the country. I feel like part of the problem, we're talking in the 2015, but we, some of us, uh, um, I'm not necessarily saying here, but some of us in these conversations I hear are still talking like it's 1985, 1975, 1965. We cannot afford to be nostalgic at this point. You know, yeah, I know where my family comes from. I know what the community used to look like, but that doesn't exist anymore. You know what I mean? And so for me, community might mean, you know what, is people physically with me in Brooklyn, but it might mean people on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. You know what I'm saying? How do you think we got people here? Because we use the community online as well as offline. And I think something that, you know, Jossie said was very important. You know, as he was talking, I kept thinking about ownership, ownership, ownership. In my humble opinion, if you don't own a piece of property or a business for in your lifetime, you're basically an economic slave. And one of the things we need to do is become financially literate. Are you financially literate? If you're not, then you need to become financially literate and figure out how to own something. And not just own it, but sustain it. You know what I mean? So you can actually pass it along to uh, you know, people come behind you. And then you also got to check your financial habits, you know? And I think a lot of us don't think about that kind of stuff. You know, how do we shift this paradigm? If we're going to keep saying, you know, for me, it's not even, I'm going to be really blunt about it. I would say, yeah, 85, 9% of the businesses that I support are black-owned businesses because it's an intentionality because I understand just like the Hasidic Jewish community supports Hasidic Jewish businesses. There's Chinatowns everywhere you go. They support Chinese businesses. So I don't have a problem with that, but I'm not just going to support black businesses. I'm going to support excellent black businesses. You know what I mean? I want to be clear about that. And I'm going to demand certain kinds of things because I'm like, we got to raise the bar back up. And this goes for all of us. When I think about communities, I also think I don't want to, I'm not, I obviously am African. I'm a black person, so I belong to the black community. The things I do there, but I also understand I got to be part of multiple communities. You know, brother talked about his dad was black and Muslim, so there's the black community, there's the Muslim community. You feel what I'm saying? I belong to the activist community. Hell, I belong to the vegan community. I belong to the hip hop community. I belong to, you know what I mean? And so how do we create communities in the 21st century, given the fact that things were intentionally, in my opinion, gentrification, so-called urban renewal, COINTELPRO, if you're an activist, y'all know what I'm talking about. All these things, what, what integration did to central districts all around the country, Auburn Avenue, Atlanta, Georgia. You know, but Brooklyn, where I'm from, has more black folks than any other community in America. A million black folks in Brooklyn. We got more black elected officials, more black churches, more black everything. But you talk about disempowerment? You know what I mean? The problem is a lack of vision, no plan, and the problem is the people who've been put in positions of gatekeepers, y'all know what I'm talking about, you know, they're, they're paid off, they're buffers, and then we're sitting around, as, as Jossie said, and other folks said so eloquently, you know, kind of fighting over crumbs and stuff like that. I'm saying some of y'all have got to be prepared, we got to be prepared, we got to know this stuff, and how do we navigate, and what's the plan, y'all? What is the plan for us in the 21st century? I think one of the simple things, those young people just left, I wanted to say before they left, we should be teaching people in our communities about basic financial literacy. It, you know, one of the things Bell Hooks taught me, and she's one of the greatest feminist, radical thinkers we have in this country, Bell Hooks owns about four or five different pieces of property, y'all. She's not a millionaire. She's just fiscally smart. 
You know what I mean? You know, and I'm like, and I'm, she was saying to me for years, Kev, you need to own something. You need to own something. You need to own something. But because of my financial ignorance, I ignored her for a long time. You know what I mean? But on the other hand, I've worked for myself for almost 20 years because I can't imagine working for anybody else because I understand how important it is to be self-empowered. And I think we just got to, I'm just suggesting, let's begin to shift these conversations. We can keep complaining, as the brother said, about what's wrong. But, like, I don't want to just react to stuff. Like, what is the proactive plan here that we're actually going to do? That's the challenge. I think, you have to, I think we also have to flip the paradigm in ownership. I don't think ownership means you have to own something by yourself. Thank you. And, in fact, I think we need to figure out how to own things in concert and in partnership with each other. Because that's not what this landmass was built upon. You know, the way ownership was instituted here actually stole from the indigenous community. Uh, my grandmother is Hopi, um, and I didn't know her very well. But as I've done research on myself, what I've learned is the people that I came from did not believe in independent ownership. And that was for a reason. And so I think it would help us to start rethinking what does it mean to be community here? Thank how you. do we own things in concert with each other? Yeah. And how do we find ways for those uh, resource networks to feed into each other? And just to give you like a 30-second answer to your transplant question, I moved here 12 years ago from Indianapolis, Indiana. Oh, wow. I grew up someplace that was predominantly black. And so Seattle was very much a culture shock for me. I had been followed in places. I had dealt with white supremacy before, but never like this, never in a covert way where people could use the same progressive language I could use and at the same time make me feel like I didn't belong here. Wow. Um, I think as a transplant, it is important to just act, just get involved and be a listener. You know, put yourself places. You may not know people. You may not know folks at Africatown. You may not know folks at the library. You may not know folks at some open mic or whatever. Whatever your interests are, just go there. Mm. Um, and, and get involved and, and know that maybe you won't vibe with everyone here. I don't vibe with everyone here. Um, and it's taken me 12 years, but I have found places and people to build with. You created communities for I yourself. Create, yeah, I created communities. I just found things I want to be a part of. And there have been plenty of communities I've decided that was not for me. Word. But uh, best believe by just being active, I've found places where I can be a part of something. I would just add to that that I appreciate that you're wanting to learn, and, and I think we all should be doing that. Um, but, but echo what Tariq said, that don't wait to be perfect. Um, don't wait till you have it all down to start doing something. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we, we do put a lot of pressure on ourselves that we have to know everything before we jump in. And I think the best way to learn about it is by jumping in. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in northern Wisconsin. I didn't have an African-American friend until I was in my 20s. I hadn't met an African-American until I was in my 20s. And, um, you know, I'm still learning. I'm, I'm trying to learn about that culture and, and trying to make myself aware of my own um, privilege and the ways that I use that without even knowing it. And I think as long as we're aware of that and that we're trying to learn and that we're open to learning, um, jump in and go. Everyone, we got to, this is going to have to be like the last one because we have to wrap this up. We got to get out of here so that they're not charged for overtime for the space. Really quickly, I wanted to speak to something you had mentioned earlier about the Central District and its gentrification over the years. Yes, I recently had a conversation with a gentleman who's from India and he owns a business and this is in south of downtown in the Des Moines area. 
we had a real quick conversation and he says, you know, I have Asian people, they come into my store. I have, you know, uh, white people, they come into my store. Caucasians come into my store. Jewish, I have all types. And he says, and I don't have any problems. They don't come in. They don't steal, they don't do anything. He says, but you know, when the African-Americans come into my store, they want credit, they're, they're ready to come in and steal, they cuss me out, they do these things. And he says, he says, well, why? He says, what's, what's going on? And I told him, I said, you know, it hasn't always been like this, and I also want to speak to African-American communities in general. It hasn't always been like this. If you remember back in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, my grandparents are from the South. They're from Louisiana. They believed in owning property. They believed in owning owning their homes, they believed in saving money, and they had all of these things, and they passed these things down from generation to generation. So from the 40s to like maybe late 60s, early 70s, there were very, very strong, economically strong African-American communities throughout the United States. But in the 70s, it was in the late 60s and the early 70s, is when we began to see the breakdown. The drugs coming into the community, the fathers weren't staying at home, they were divorced from their, their wives, um, we had something. The black things, middle class abandoned right. the working class black community. We had to right. say that. So nice it hasn't and loud. always been like that for the African American community. And so we've had a steady erosion from the 70s up until now. Um, you know, we, we have uh, the music, you know, the, the uh, disrespect of African American women, you know, uh, B words, and, uh, you know, just there's been a lot of negativity that's happened since that time. So the one thing that I wanted to say is that it hasn't always been like this for the African-American community. And the other thing that I would say is that we collectively need to begin to, some of the things that you talked about, begin to think about what we can start doing. Because we've talked a, a lot. You know, we continue to talk and we need to continue to dialogue, but we need to start acting. So, for example, <coughs> what, okay, can I, real quickly it, what I'm going to say is got, about a month ago, uh, there's a, three African-American gentlemen, and they're young, in their 20s, and, you know, they, you know, wear the hip-hop, and they wear the, you know, lower, you know, pants, you know, oh. low, and, and I talked to them, and I was like, you know, what, yeah, are you guys interested in going to college? You can go to college. But see, you know, can, I, can, I, can I say something? I feel like you, were you here for the whole program? With all due respect, were you here for the whole program? I feel like you just ignored 90% of the stuff that was said on this set tonight. Because, you know, what I'm hearing is a lot of blaming of black people without, let me finish, please, with all due respect. And we got to wrap this up. I'm willing to talk with people somewhere else. You can have my email, my telephone number. But, you know, it's, you know if you're not going to talk about systems of oppression that can create the conditions that you're describing, you're, you're doing the typical thing of blaming the victim for the victimization. You know what I mean? It's like I was born in a ghetto. I didn't create the ghetto. It was already there, and it exists on purpose. You know? And so my question always to people who start talking like that, when you're saying, well, well, black folks are disrespectful and the way they act, as you were talking, I was thinking about white people on Wall Street who have run amok over the last 20 years you know, economically. And it's the same, you know, let's be real about this. Let, let me finish, man, with all due respect. Like, let's not practice black self-hatred by blaming our people without having some sort of analysis of the system that creates the behaviors that you're describing because it's easy for us to dis, to dis our own people but it's cowardly if we don't say anything about the systems that create the circumstances if you really want to talk about dr king next month actually dr king talked about all of that in the last three four years of his life look him up it's called testament of hope the collective speeches of dr king he talks about systems and he was from the black elite he was a phd as i was saying i'm saying yeah we need to hold each other accountable
accountable, but you also got to talk about the system that perpetuates gentrification, that perpetuates ghettos, that perpetuates, you know, redlining, that does not offer loans to certain kinds of businesses. All these different things that create the conditions. The school system is a disaster everywhere we go. Charter schools is big business on purpose. We can go through a whole range of things. You talk about hip-hop. Well, hip-hop is controlled by three record labels that control all the music, and it's just a new version of the menstrual show that's putting out destructive images intentionally to undermine our communities. And so if you don't understand that, then how can we have this conversation? We got to go, ma'am, with all due respect. But you started off by what's wrong with us. And I hear that all over the country. I, I'm hard on my own people, but I also come from a position of love, and I put it in context. If you're not going to offer, even if you only have 30 seconds, you always got to put it in context. Jossie said 30 seconds, you put it in context. Where's the context at? The context has to be rooted in love for the people. Otherwise, it sounds like we're hating the people that we're supposedly trying to help. I'm not with that. I'm not supporting that. Well, in context, what we collectively need to do, what we must do, is we can continue to And so do the people on Wall Street, ma'am, because they actually undermine a lot of black people who tried to buy into the American dream, and most of them lost their homes all around the country. So are you going to hold Wall Street accountable? Are you going to hold the United States government? Seriously. Then you need to say that. You need to have the courage to say that as well, with all due respect. Ma'am, and I guarantee you, no one is debating that. My problem is when we focus only on us and don't talk about the systems that create this stuff. That's the problem. That's the, I've heard that everywhere, and it's a very dangerous precedent, and it's the opposite of a Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, our whole history. If you're going to talk about our history, well, our history is a history of resistance and challenging the madness. Hey, beautiful people. I, we got to wrap it up, we, man. We got to wrap it up. We can talk afterwards. We got to wrap it up. We have to wrap it up. Thank we have to you, wrap everybody. it up. We have to wrap it up. Also, before everyone peels off, it's really clear that we didn't reach the end of our conversation. So just, just keeping it 100. So one of the things that I want to say, we're winding down December. The library is going to continue to have a focus on equity and social justice. And it's really clear that it has to be a dialogue. So when we asked you to tag us on social media and tell us what you want to talk about, I know we didn't get to everyone's question. That interest and desire to engage you is going to remain. So please stay in touch with us, and thank you so much for coming out. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Kevin Powell and guests spoke at the Seattle Public Library on December 12th. Thanks to Amy Tweedo and SPL for our recording. Tune in again soon for more from Speakers Forum, and best wishes for a happy new year.